I'm Nick Newton, joined by Will Miles. Welcome to Stand Up and Holler. Arkansas 39, Florida 36. Defense and critical errors proved costly as the Gators wrap up their SEC schedule at home. Florida's depth was tested this past week. A uh, couple major injuries along the defensive front, which meant plenty of playing time for some young players. We'll highlight that, and we'll wrap up with the LSU preview. Well, Will, this was a tough one. This was a tough one. I saw a good follow on Twitter for any football fan, Coach Dan Casey. Uh, he had this tweet this week. After winning a national championship, Lavelle Edwards was asked if he wanted a lifetime contract at BYU. He responded, nah, you guys would just call me in after a losing season and pr pronounce me dead. So no one has to tell Billy Napier that coaching's a rough business. Uh, he, he's experiencing plenty of it this week. Uh, let's just jump right into the game. Defense really struggled down the stretch here overall throughout the game. 481 total yards to an Arkansas offense that had not topped the 250 mark in its prior four outings and was on their first game with a new offensive coordinator, uh, former Ohio State quarterback, played up there under Urban Meyer. Kenny Guyton uh, is leading the way for the Hogs. K.J. Jefferson was definitely in the mix this week, threw for 255 through the air, two touchdowns, and rushed for another 92 in a key touchdown late Absolute wrecking ball on a key run that set up the final score in overtime as well. Rocket Sanders, another big fella. You see why those two uh, throughout their careers. It's been a struggle this year on offense. Uh, I know Rocket Sanders missed a lot of time for the Hawks, but these two have been effective for a good part of their time in Fayetteville. Uh, he be he became the first Razorback this season, though, to rush for more than 100 yards in the game. And only the second time this season that a wide receiver has topped the 100-yard 100 mark will for Arkansas. Uh, the defense, if you want to look at, try to find some parts of the game they played well in here. Uh, the second and third quarter, they allowed six total points in a game where they end up giving 39. That's a little bit interesting. Rough start. Of course, one of those touchdowns is not on the defense. We'll talk about that later. But overall, just couldn't close things out down the stretch, allowing Arkansas to score on their final four drives, including a field goal, a touchdown, a field goal, a touchdown right down the stretch. Arkansas sneaks out a victory in the swamp. Yeah, I mean, look, the defense gave up 6.2 yards per play. Um, Arkansas's average 4.5 all year long, so that's a 1.7 yard per play difference. Same thing for Georgia. They were averaging 6.8, got 7.4 against Florida. South Carolina averaging 5.1, got 7.4 versus Florida. Vanderbilt averaging 5.0, got 6.5 against Florida. Kentucky averaging 6.1, got 7.2 against Florida. The only two teams this year that have underperformed their season yards per play thus far are Tennessee. That was by 0.4 yards. So they, they have averaged 6.4 this year. They averaged 6.0 against Florida, which still isn't good. It's just better than what Tennessee's done all year. And then Charlotte average, has averaging 4.6, averaged 3.9 against the Gators. So the defense has been underwhelming for the pretty much ever since game four. Um, and, you know, I think after four games in, we were saying, hey, we're seeing some progress here. I think we've seen some regression in the last few weeks. And obviously there were some guys missing on the defensive side of the ball. Certainly the third and the fourth quarter is where Florida got got really gashed in this one. So they gave up 5.9 yards per play in the first quarter. Just, I mean, Arkansas went right down on the field on them on the opening drive. So I'm not really going to gonna attribute that one to being tired. Then 3.5 yards per play in the second quarter, then 6.1 in the third and 7.8 in the fourth. And so, you know, when they got tired, all of a sudden you saw it and, and you saw it in a lot of different ways. So Arkansas came into the game averaging about 10, 10 plus yard plays per game. And that's really, really bad. They had 19 against Florida. They were averaging two 20 plus yard plays. They had five. They were averaging 0.5 40 plus yard plays. They had two. And the really the theme to me in this one was tackling. There were a lot of open field missed tackles. There was one specifically by Jordan Castell on a little crosser on a third down. They would have had the first down, but he went for the legs of the wide receiver and wound up taking out the linebacker who was trailing and all of a sudden ends up a 48-yard pass instead of what should have been a six-yard pass and a first down. There were a lot of running plays where maybe they should have picked up four or five. So those defensive tackles gets blocked, get blocked up front. That is a different problem that this defense has. But all of a sudden, you know, there was one play I highlighted in my postgame article where Princely Human Milan hits a guy like seven yards downfield, and it ends up being like an 18-yard run because he just carried him the rest of the way. And 
those sorts of things aren't a one-off. It's not like you see it and go, oh, that happened that play. That never happens any other time. And and you highlighted it. And In fact, I think we mentioned it after the Georgia game that there was a fourth and three where there was an open field tackle by Georgia on, I think it was Trey Wilson on the outside. Maybe it was maybe it was uh, uh, ETN, but it was a throw to the outside on fourth and three. A Georgia linebacker comes over, makes a perfect tackle, and had help even if he didn't make the tackle where it would have been tough for Florida to get the first down. So that's sort of the thing is there's not a whole lot of gang tackling when there is gang tackling they they get carried um there's not a lot of strength up front so they're getting blocked up front they can't get pressure with the front four i went back and looked at just about every third down where uh or every major running play that kj jefferson had and they were playing single high safety they had an extra guy in the box they were trying to spy him a few different times and he was able to get out past the linebackers as well it's just when there's nothing disruptive going on up front it's going to be a tough day for Florida, and there was nothing disruptive up front in this one, and Arkansas took advantage of it. And coming into this one, really sort of the the key was going to be how much did K.J. Jefferson run because he'd averaged one and a half yards per rush all season long, but he'd averaged like four and a half yards per rush in 2021-2022. He averaged 5.4 in this one. And then the other thing that was going to be a key was how many explosives did Florida give up, and they gave up a ton of explosives to a team that just hasn't had many explosives all year long. They gave up five 20-plus yard plays, but two of them, one was 45 and one was 48. Every t- every time they got an explosive, that turned into a, turned into a major – major point for Arkansas and and look Florida made a bunch of mistakes but so did Arkansas there was there was there was sort of a in that third quarter there it seemed like all right which team's trying to hand this one over um it, it, but it felt that way didn't it I, I actually had that in my transition here I was gonna say hey Florida made a ton of mistakes Arkansas trying to keep up we we, we just well, outpaced the Razorbacks but well what I find interesting with the defense here is the numbers are not good one one thing they actually did this game, they got a couple turnovers. We haven't seen a whole lot of that out of this defense. They got, got uh, of course, an interception that led to nothing. But then they got a fumble late that set up uh, the go-ahead touchdown late in the third quarter uh, from Merch to Pearsall. But even with that effort, still a lot to be desired from this defense. Yeah, I mean, look, I think anybody who expects this defense to be locked down, I think we could have said this coming into the year, anyone who expected the defense to be locked down is going to be disappointed. The disappointment for me comes from I expected to see them get better throughout the year, right? I expected all the youth to cost them early and then that youth to really provide a benefit as the season went along. And it feels like guys are regressing. It feels like they're not getting better as the season goes along. Is that because they're nicked up? Is that because they're playing teams coming off a bye? But here's the other thing is that when you came into this game, Arkansas's offense was ranked in the hundreds. Florida's defense was ranked in the hundreds. Florida's offense was ranked in the fifties. Arkansas's defense was ranked in the fifties. So this was essentially an even matchup given where these teams have been. And it was going to be a question of honestly, which weakness took over, right? Like the weak Florida defense or the weak Arkansas offense and the weak Arkansas offense in the fourth quarter specifically was able to take advantage and was able to take over and win the game. But this is still a three-point game, right? I mean, and if Florida hits the field goal at the end there, and I'm sure we'll talk about some of the stuff going on there, but if Florida hits that field goal at the end and wins by three, I think we're all going, whew, got lucky to get out of that one. At the same time, you get out of it with the win, you're bowl eligible, everything feels a whole lot different. It seems kind of ridiculous to me to analyze the overall the overall program from for from this one game the problem is is that there's a lot of things that have gone on all season long that have led to this sort of loss and and those are the things that i think most people either take umbrage with or at least show concern i think concern is a legitimate is a legitimate feeling at this point yeah i wasn't planning to go big picture yet but since you mentioned it will if florida knocks through that field goal what's the conversation like this week is it anywhere close to the level uh, of irritation that exists right now because if they knocked that field goal in the mistakes still happened it's like the South Carolina win the South Carolina win could have gone either way it went our way on that day Arkansas didn't this is a team that does not have we we don't have a lot of extra room baked in to make all these mistakes that we seem to make week in and week out And, and this group is is played pretty sloppy football for the majority of the year, even in victories, victories have not always been pretty. I mean, you don't complain about the wins. We're sitting here at five and four. We know the limitations on this team. I, that's the word I like to use with this team. It's quite limited in some areas. I think they're getting what they can in, in a lot of areas. I, I, I've been, I'll give you an example. I've been totally impressed with how 
Billy has developed Mertz and how Mertz has played this year. Uh, I think he's gotten as much as you can out of Graham Mertz, and, and I don't think that's been a huge weakness for Florida. I think that's something I'm I'm borderline shocked. Like that was something if you told me what Mertz had done to this point in the preseason, I, I would have been I would have taken that in a heartbeat. So there's been some pleasant surprises too, but for a guy that's so that has it so together seemingly in so many areas the fact that these mistakes keep cropping up week in and week out and we'll talk about the critical errors here in a second but for this game but uh, big picture will where are you at with this where how, how are you feeling about this after the arkansas game in general i i don't i don't think it, it's it's at a point where it needs to be uh any conversation there needs to be any real conversation about the future but in terms of day-to-day management especially within the game i should say game day management specifically there needs to be a lot of conversation about that yeah i mean look i we, we said this after the utah game i think said it again after the kentucky game is that billy napier's value proposition coming here was operational excellence and we are not getting operational excellence and that's not just the fire drill after the first down to boarding ham where they they could have come out and where everyone should have known they were going to clock the ball and 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 those sorts of things it's the missed pats it's the too many men on the field it's the false starts that we got up at utah and and all those sorts of things right but i think the big issue to me and this was always the concern with Napier when he came here is he had a ton of one score games at Louisiana and he just happened to win a bunch of them so he's got 28 one score games in his career so far that's 38 percent of all of his games and a lot of those came against teams that were less talented than Louisiana so he's got 21 score wins two were the teams that were ranked ahead of him in the FPI so 18 were below in terms of like at the end of the year where the teams were ranked, 18 of those 20 wins were below. He had eight one-score losses. Six were to teams that were ranked better than him in the FBI and two below. So you know, he, does, he does get hit every once in a while by a team that's less talented that wins one of those one-score games. But when it comes to the one-score wins, they're sort of playing down to the competition. One-score games go either direction. The fact that he's 20 and 8, you can read one, one of two ways. You can go, ooh, he's a great in-game coach. Or you can say he's gotten really lucky so far. And that's the concern to me is that, you know, the the question was, is he a great in-game coach? Is that why he's 20 and 8 in those games? Because he's 31 and 15 in all the other games. Like, and if you sort of factor in the one score games and what should have happened, he should have been instead of 10 and 1 in 2020, he should have been 7 and 5 at at Louisiana. Instead of 12 and 1 in 2021, he should have been 9 and 5. So, you know, if he was, if he was seven and five and nine and five in his last two seasons there at Louisiana, does Florida go hire him? Right. It was the 10 and one and the 12 and one in those two years that made Florida think, Hey, this is the guy we need to go get. So what it really comes down to, to me, and I think this is true for 95% of coaches who are out there is he needs a team that's significantly more talented than the opposition to make sure that it's not a one score game because when it's a one score game, it's a crap shoot. And I think the, the, the 20 and eight record and really at Louisiana, it was, so he's, he's, he's four and four in one score games at Florida. So that pixie dust is worn off in those one score games at Florida. So he was 16 and four in one score games at Louisiana. I think that was a mirage. I, I think we can pretty much definitively say at this point that that was something where Louisiana was getting lucky. That was not Napier's on-field excellence that was getting that done. And can he do other things to make sure that you maximize the opportunities on the field? Absolutely. But I think what it really comes down to is he's going to have to load this team with talent and he's going to have to have a quarterback who's a difference maker. And ever since Jaden Rashada decided to go to Arizona state for whatever reason, we can, we've gotten into that hardcore, but from that moment, his entire era is based on DJ Lagway being a transcendent player at the quarterback position. And that's the reality is if Lagway can come out and just be awesome, Florida will win a bunch of games by 25, 35 points. And this, and the operational stuff won't matter to expect the operational stuff to get better after almost two years of it being poor. Even if he delegates a bunch of stuff for, you know, to where he's not the offensive coordinator and all those sorts of things. The fact that this happens in all different aspects of the team, 
to me means it's not fixable just by delegating those sorts of things. It's something you're going to have to live with as a limitation of Billy Napier. And hey, like that limitation means you better not have a bunch of close games because close games are, you know, it. I think Florida might be in a disadvantage in those cases. So you're going to have to win some blowouts. Now, look, he's recruiting, at least in the 2024 level, where you're going to be able to have games where you're, you know, where you're not ending up in those close games all the time, where you're not looking for a coaching advantage, a strategic advantage. Now, this is, it's a catch 22, right? I think Dan Mullen gave Florida a strategic advantage on the field a lot of times when he was out there, but he never had the horses to be able to execute. I think Napier is building a roster that eventually is going to have the horses to where you don't have to have that strategic advantage, but I don't think you're going to have the strategic advantage. And so, you know, it, it's difficult to get that combination of of both things. And, you know, Alabama has it with a guy who recruits like crazy and is an awesome defensive coordinator. Georgia has it with a guy who, who you know, has proven over the last few years that at least he can make some key decisions at the end. But look, Kirby's not immune to making stupid decisions. His team just always wins by 40 points now. And, you know, if he goes one and one in one score games in a year, he plays for the national championship as, as long as that one game isn't in the playoffs. So I think that's what we've learned. What we've learned is that operational excellence, while it was the value proposition we were sold, is not the value proposition, at least on the field, that we're going to see. So it needs to be the value proposition when it comes to recruiting. And if the recruiting tails off at all in 2025 or 2026, then Napier's in trouble because he needs those recruiting classes to overcome some of the stuff we're seeing on the field. I'm not making excuses for some of the uh, silly mistakes you see out there week in and week out. However, did a little digging today. I was going through the roster. 82 out of 118 players on the roster are classified as underclassmen. It's nearly 70% of the roster, Will. Specifically up front, uh, well, let's talk about the upperclassmen real quick. The upperclassmen, of those upperclassmen, uh, all 36 of them, not, not a big number there, all 36 of them, only 15 originally signed out of high school uh, with the Gators. I think that goes the furthest back is Dante Xanders back. Uh, was he 2018, I believe, on there? A class yep. of 2018, I believe. So I think he's the last one from 2018, but most 2019. So 2018, 19, 20, and 21 up through those classes. Uh, you got guys from each of those classes, but only 15. Uh, are, are from original high school signing. He's got 18 transfers and eight walk-ons among those 36 upperclassmen. So this is a very young team. It's a very young team on, on the field that is making mistakes. Will, up front, you talk about getting pushed around, 19 offensive linemen total on the roster, 14 are underclassmen. 14 are underclassmen. Saw some Cam Waits this weekend, too. We'll talk about that in, in six bits here. Uh, 19 of 24 defensive linemen our underclassmen. So this truly is a very young roster right now that Napier is working with. So there really is, but, but that's why you would think you have to be super sharp on some of these things like special teams, like the number of people you have on the field. And Hey, if we're counting too much on guys to do the right thing at times, maybe we need to have coaches more involved in certain areas. We have, if you go look at the team photo, there's more rows of people than, that are on the staff than there are players at this point. So there's got to be like a, a game changer for counting or something like that at some point. We got to figure that out. So like the simple things you like to see him get right here, Will. But let's let's focus in on the Arkansas game here. Plenty of options to discuss in terms of critical errors, but I, I really want to zone in on these three. I'm surprised nobody called 911 after witnessing Ricky Pearsall get absolutely mugged early in the game he just had the ball ripped away so effectively he had a nice game five catches 55 yards we talked about the touchdown but he had the ball ripped away so decisively that the Arkansas running back or defensive back looked like a running back because he's taken off down the sideline defensive back easily remained on his feet just flipped around trotted in for an early 14 nothing lead for Arkansas puts Florida in a major hole early well yeah, I mean, look, I think Pierce will be the first to tell you that can't happen, that you got to have the ball secure. But sometimes those things happen, right? And Pearsall has been an awesome player all year long. I don't think that Pearsall has been indicative of some of the the discombobulation that we've seen. So I'm not going to throw him under the bus for that one specifically. Obviously, it's a killer turnover. Being down 14 nothing, essentially four minutes in is not ideal. Florida has to fight back. If you don't have that seven points, then Florida you know, probably goes into the half with a, you know, maybe 
even a 10 point lead instead what was a tie ball game when they went into the half so, yep, so th- there's there there's a lot of there's a lot to be said for when you have a team coming in who's two and six who's been discouraged who just had their offensive coordinator fired and is coming out there and they're hoping that something's different but they don't necessarily know whether it's going to be that you got to put your foot on their throat and Florida decided to give up essentially you know the the defense was Swiss cheese on the first drive and just got absolutely carved up and you know there was even a trick play where they didn't have Jefferson at quarterback on the opening play of the game mm-hmm. they pitch it to him and then throw back to a to a wide open receiver because the linebackers are out of position then the linebacker completely misses or gets screened i guess Scooby Williams got screened on a on a wheel route to a to a running back for the touchdown just the easiest touchdown throw you'll ever see and all of a sudden arkansas has momentum then Pearsall comes out and gets stripped on the first play of the game for florida it's 14 to nothing florida's reeling and arkansas is like yeah we got a shot right there was an opportunity to bury him they didn't do it they allowed him to essentially believe they were going to get that win and from that point on, by the minute, by the time it was fourteen nothing, there was nothing Florida could do. They knew they were in a dogfight. South or Arkansas knew, hey, we got a shot to win this one. And all of a sudden, you know, the gloves were off, and here we go. There were so to me, that's the significance of the fumble. The significance of the fumble. Look, those things are going to happen sometimes. All those sorts of things, right? But the other thing is, those two yards he was fighting for really aren't that important. You can just go out of bounds. Right. Like the, there's there's a time to fight for the extra yards and there's a time to just go, you know what? I'm fine with second and two after getting the throw on the outside for two reasons. One, the fumble. And the other one is I don't want somebody rolling up on Ricky Pearsall's ankle when he's fighting for an extra yard on first and 10 from his own 25. Right. Like that there are there are better times to do that. And that's something he'll learn. And again, I think that's I'm not going to fault the guy, though, for trying to get extra yards and fumbling. Like that's not a mental error. It's a physical error. And sometimes those things happen. Pre-BTD, that's critical error number one. Critical error number two. I'm going to call this the special teams miscue of the week, brought to you by the fine folks who have been trying to get in contact with you about your car's extended warranty. The bobbled snap, which cost the Gators an extra point to keep the lead at three points late there, Will, instead of going to four, is worth mentioning. But you obviously got to go with the field goal team just sprinting on like they're going to battle while Mertz is uh, he's in the offense. They're trying to get the the ball clocked so that they could set up the winning field goal. Uh, I think I've had nightmares about Crawshaw's white towel waving uh, while he's sprinting on the field. So I, I think I've seen that in my nightmares a couple weeks times this week here. Uh, the confusion ends up costing the Gators five yards. And thankfully it didn't cost them a 10 second runoff. That could have been a huge story, but thankfully it did not. Uh, the rules did not call for that 10 second runoff in that situation, but ends up, ends up really not mattering uh, too much at the end of the day. Cause I think smack would have pushed that for I think he would have pushed that to the right. If he was from 39, that was pretty significantly right from 44, but ends up missing the field goal. Gators go to overtime, end up dropping the game, the first overtime. So that's critical error. Number two, will, yeah, so I mean, the extra point completely changed the complexion of the four, of the second half, right? Missing that extra point meant that there were a couple of times where Arkansas was driving and could settle for field goals to tie it, as opposed to um, as opposed to having to go for a touchdown. Whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, I don't necessarily know. But the last drive where it was what thirty three to thirty, Florida's ahead by three. Mm-hmm. Sure, would have been nice to be thirty four to thirty, right? Or there might have been opportunities to go for two later in the game. After, when Arkansas gets that touchdown, they would have then had to go for two in order to pull ahead by, uh, I think what it would have put them ahead by, well, maybe they wouldn't have gone for two. They would have just kicked the field goal and would have, or kicked the extra point would have been up by three. Anyway, it changes stuff in the second, in the second half. So I, I don't think you want to necessarily poo poo that anytime you just give a point away in a game that you lose in overtime, that that's obviously important. It's not as simple as saying, Oh, you know, they would have been ahead and, you know, wouldn't have had to drive like all that stuff. It would have com- changed the complexion, but it would have changed the complexion. As far as the field goal, there are a couple things there. One is that Arkansas called a timeout before the play to Boardingham that put Florida in position. That's the thing that I have the most problem with. Not that Florida was discombobulated on the sideline and didn't know what to do. If it had been like they were driving. So if you think about the game against LSU in the fog back in 2020, 
they went flying down the field because they had like what, like 18, 19 seconds when they got the ball. And and uh, Kyle Trask hit a couple of throws to Kadarius Tony to put him in field goal range. If the same thing had happened in that game, I'm actually not as critical of the field goal unit as I am here because they didn't have time to sit there and talk through every single scenario in that case. In this case, there was an opportunity for a coach to pull the special teams unit aside and essentially tell them, when we get a completion, we're going to clock it because there was no way to get them out there on the field and kick a field goal without clocking it. Like, like even if they'd thrown the ball to Boardingham for three yards, they were going to have to clock it because, <laughs> because there just wasn't enough time to get the unit out there. So that to me is the problem. The problem is, is that you had a timeout beforehand. You knew what you were going to run. You could talk through the whole thing. Your options were going to be clock it and throw a Hail Mary if you're not in field goal range or clock it and then get the field goal unit out there. But clocking it was always going to be part of the scenario because you didn't have enough time left to run the team out there. Like you were going to have to line up and clock the ball no matter what happened. And and so the fact that they're running out there on the field means somebody didn't go talk to them about it beforehand. They didn't understand the scenarios and it hadn't been explained to them, which again, just goes back to what we talked about earlier in terms of operational excellence. Like who's responsible for that? Who's held responsible? And the fact that they're telling me that a player is responsible for gathering up those guys and having them come out on the field is an unacceptable allocation of resources, considering that you could have a defensive backs coach who walks over there and says, go, <laughs> and if the word is go, it's the wrong word because you need a word that's, that's more clear so that those guys aren't running out there on the field when they shouldn't be. It, again, it's just if this was the only special teams gaffe that had happened all year, then I think you look at that and you go, OK, like it happened. I get it. There's some disorganizations late in the game, blah, 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 blah. But it's not the only like you like you. you we have to pick between the special teams gaffes for the special teams gaffe of the week. And you missed the one where we didn't have enough guys on, on the field for the field goal. No, but that's that an old one. Missed. That's a that's a boring one. That's a that's in the classics. I <laughs> well, I didn't didn't need to pick that one. So that. <laughs> but again, the excuse on that one doesn't hold water either. We had an injury. We didn't. Our unit didn't know he was injured, so we didn't tell the guy who was the backup that he was supposed to go out there. So we wound up not having enough guys out there for the for the field goal for the field goal attempt from Arkansas. One of these days, they're going to get caught by a fake because they're only going to have nine guys out on the field. And and the the offense is just going to go. Even our kicker is going to be able to run for a first down because we got ten guys blocking nine, and they're just going to say run it. Like if you get out there and you see Florida doesn't have enough guys, just run the damn ball. And I'm surprised, other than the the Georgia game, which it came out after that Georgia game, that they only had two guys protecting the punter and didn't have a third. And when Georgia saw that, <laughs> that's when they decided to go after the punt that really sort of sealed that game. Obviously it's only two points, but at that point everybody dropped their heads and knew that game was over. So yeah, look, I mean, it's been all year long. It shouldn't surprise us, but it also is indicative of a staff that does not, is not able to teach during the week effectively to make sure that the, that the things that every other staff gets right happen. Right. Like there's a baseline level of competence that should be an expectation at a power five school. And Florida thus far has not been able to achieve the baseline level of competence on special teams, which makes you wonder how often that we just can't see it is that baseline level of competence not not being pushed through to either the offense or the defensive side of the ball as well. If anyone's interested for next week's uh, special teams miscues, we are looking for sponsors. So just reach out to Will. Will, you want to throw your email out there? Will at readandreaction.com. We are happy to have the Poland Weed Eater uh, special teams gaffe of the week because uh, chances are we'll have one. Yeah, well, this week, thank you to the fine folks, at, uh, the people trying to contact you about your car's extended warranty for sponsoring this one. So get in touch with them. You know, Stop ignoring their calls, everybody. Uh, let's go on here. Critical error number three in Arkansas holding penalty pushed the Hogs back to the Florida 35 yard line to open overtime on the ensuing first and 20 KJ Jefferson ran through two weak arm tackles before lowering his shoulder and knocking back the safety a couple yards. Just I'm, I'm leaving the name out to protect the guy. I like I like the kid, you know, so we'll leave it. We'll just call him the safety there. 
knocked it back a couple of yards and then proceeded to carry the ball about another seven yards while surrounded by uh, several other Gators playing patty cake along the way, maybe trying to strip the ball, but seemingly almost walking him the full seven yards before Kelby Collins has to come in and clean up the mess 20 yards downfield first down in a, it, they were sent back to the 35 yard line. That, that should have been a great situation. Will, but it's another example of not finishing a tackle. And on the next play, same thing. Rocket Sanders hitting the backfield, not quite brought down. Mind you, these these are two big dudes. Like so, it, it, I, I get it, I get it. But at the same time, not bringing them down. Four teams before us found a way to tackle them for less than 250 yards in the game. So it, it's doable. It's doable with this team. So Arkansas ends up after that. Rocket Sanders first down, completely just putting the game away. The next play, I, they were in business at first and goal at the four yard line and able to uh, put the final nail in Florida's coffin for the day, Will. So Arkansas came into the game averaging 2.9 yards per rush. They averaged 4.8 yards per rush in this one. They averaged 9.4 yards per rush in the fourth quarter. So, look, Florida got tired and they got soft. That's what it really boils down to, is they got tired and they got run over. And, you know, th- that that's indicative of a lot of different things, but that's what happened. And K.J. Jefferson in the first half ran for negative yardage and then in the second half ran for over 100 yards. And, you know, we knew coming in that was going to be a problem if Jefferson was able to run all over them, that that was going to be an issue. And that's exactly what we saw. What we saw is that Jefferson runs – 10 times for 102 yards in the second half. You've got the example of the Rocket Sanders, but that's even, you know, beyond just, you you mentioned Patty Cake on the play before. Jaden Hill comes in on a blitz from the outside. They're blitzing from the outside because they can't get any pressure up front and can't get any push up front. And when Jaden Hill misses the tackle on Sanders and gets him to sort of stumble forward, there's nobody anywhere near him to clean it up. And I think that is indicative of more of the problem than Hill missing the tackle specifically. Like Hill will tell you he needs to make that tackle, right? But the fact that the guy has time to put both hands on the ground and then run around the edge, like it was almost like so. My mother, not a huge, uh, not a huge football connoisseur, she was here this week, and she's like. I don't understand why the running backs just run right into the middle of the the pile and then don't run around the edge. And I'm like, well, they don't because it's you can't. Like, there's not enough time to run around the edge. They'll catch you. The defense is fast enough to catch you. Apparently, that doesn't apply to Florida's defense because they were not fast enough to catch him as he went around the edge. And I think you could say the same thing about about Rocket Sanders. Look, I think I think Austin Armstrong tried. He had a single high safety all second half, had an extra safety in up at the front trying to help, and they were just getting blocked. And there, there was a play I showed specifically in my postgame article where the offensive lineman for Arkansas fell in front of the linebacker, and before the linebacker had an opportunity to jump over him and make the play, the two defensive linemen who were in front of him got driven back into him. <laughs> to where all of a sudden it didn't matter that Arkansas's guard had fallen down because they just their two guys took out three Gator defenders. And I'm like, when that happens, you're screwed. Like when when the offense has a disadvantage for for blockers for for the defense and still is able to win, you're gonna have problems. And, that, and that's what's happened. What what happened was especially in the second half, they they just got out physical. They got beat up front by Arkansas. An Arkansas team hasn't beaten anybody up front all year. And that's the thing that I think disturbs you about the defense is that it's not like they got beat up front by Georgia, though they did two weeks ago too. It's that they now just got beat up by the dregs of the SEC, essentially, which means that's kind of where Florida's defense is. Well, we'll stop torching everybody about the Arkansas game in terms of the big mistakes, but a couple general notes here. Uh, before you head out, I do want to note that this Florida team didn't take its first lead until the end of the third quarter on that Mertz to Pearsall strike after the fumble recovery. So much like the Carolina game, this team did compete all the way down the wire there. So unlike South Carolina, like I said, ended up on the wrong end uh, uh, of a close game there. Uh, Florida also on offense scored four of their last final drives that missed field goal being the only one they didn't score and gave uh, uh, the team a shot to win late. You know, Mertz goes 283, three touchdowns, no interceptions, 36 points. You win you a lot of games. 
Like the this is not the game to have the Billy OC talk. If you want to talk about it in terms of operation, fine. But 36 points should win you a lot of games. So the Gators offense goes for almost 400, 394 total. So I, I just want to stress offense was not the issue on this Saturday in the swamp, Will. Yeah, so, you know, if you look at points for and points against, you can sort of calculate an expected win percentage, and Florida should be four and three in their seven non, non, uh, you know, when you take McNeese out of it, they should be four and three. And so they're, they're five and four overall, right? I mean, it's, it is what, it is what you expect. Um, if they had a top 24, if they had a top 20 offense, Points scored, points for, points against. You'd still expect them to be four and three in those same seven games. Mm-hmm. So, you know that that's the reality is that this team is is limited in a lot of different ways, and um, the limitations are are a problem. It, it just is right. The the limitations are not on the offensive side of the ball; they're on the defensive side of the ball. Defense is giving up what thirty nine points to to. Um, to Arkansas, 39 points. Did they give up 39 points to Georgia too? And then uh, what? How many? They, yeah, 42. I mean, thir- 42 to Georgia and then 39 to South Carolina. Mm. So somehow they're two and two in the last four games, <laughs> even though they've been giving up 40 points a game to at least three of those guys. And, and uh, you know, they gave up 14 to Vanderbilt. So, and even in the Vanderbilt game, I think they got lucky to only give up 14. So, um, yeah, defense is the issue. No matter what happens on the offensive side of the ball, um, but like you said, you score thirty six points, you should win a bunch of games. Certainly, if you score thirty, if you'd have told me Florida was going to score thirty six points against Arkansas, I would have told you they win by two touchdowns. Yeah, yeah. So, so the, yeah. offense, the offense is scoring and getting things done. There didn't quite get it done on the defensive side in this one. So, uh, before we go on to LSU here, will. We did see the Gators depth tested this past weekend. We saw Cam Jackson, Tyreek Sapp out on the defensive side of the ball. Of course, Shamar James, just to name a few, James will be out for the rest of the season. Pyburn goes down with an ACL, which is a bummer. Would have loved to see him get more work. Uh, Enjoy watching him play. It's November. Injuries are going to happen in football, though. That's nothing unusual for the game of football. Last week before the game, Napier had made the comment that you're going to see Kelby Collins more often. You'll see Jack Pyburn more often. You're going to see Jamari Lyons more often, Chris McClellan more often. So all the guys that have been playing will continue to play. They'll just play a little bit more. Uh, Pyburn, Collins, Cameron James, uh, they all saw some playing time with Sap out and Lions saw some playing time with Jackson out. According to snap counts from PFF, I got this from a Gator Country article. Uh, Kelby Collins, 52 snaps on the day. Caleb Banks, 45. Lions, 41. McClellan, 38. TJ Searcy got in uh, 29 snaps. Uh, Piper in the 26th, obviously out for the season. And James, Cameron James, we haven't seen a ton of him this year. We got 10 snaps out of him in this game, though, Will. Yeah, I mean, look, it's nice that Florida's getting all this experience for these guys. I think mm-hmm. that will pay off. But that was sort of the downside of the Arkansas loss, right, is that these guys were going to get a lot of experience from a bowl appearance, and now they got to pull off an upset in one of these last three games to have that same experience. So that's where a lot of the disappointment comes from is, yeah, I mean, look, I picked Florida to win by three in the game against Arkansas. I'm not surprised that Arkansas managed to pull it out. I think the game kind of played out very similarly to the way we might have thought it would have. Um, just from a statistical perspective, the disappointment comes in all the different mistakes that lead you to that three-point loss, um, even though those things have started to get baked into the cake at this point. So um, all the young guys getting playing time is going to help this team eventually. They're going to need these guys to win. Billy Napier, you mentioned it earlier in terms of the youth on the team. He's bet on a youth movement and building this team from high school, building the team from first principles, changing the culture, bringing these guys in. And now the question is going to be, these guys are going to have to be the leaders next year. So the guys who came in two years ago are going to have to be the leaders. They're going to be juniors, right? Those are the guys, the Shamar Jameses of the world. And, uh, you know, and the Trevor ETNs and those guys are going to have to be the leaders who pull these younger guys along and make sure they understand what the expectations are. So getting those guys in the game now is crucial to having that leadership set. I mean, Napier talks about meeting with his leadership team. His leadership team is going to be all 19-year-old guys next year, so he's going to need guys who have real experience on the field in an SEC setting. And look, they're about to get it because it's not like the injuries are going to stop piling up given what Florida has coming up in the next few weeks. So they're all about to go in into Baton Rouge 
And we'll see. Hopefully Cam Jackson's back. Hopefully some of the other guys are back as well. But you may have to play that game without those guys. They are expecting Jackson and Sapp back. That's what I read today. So those are also young enough guys, at least when it comes to Sapp, that that getting the experience in Baton Rouge is critical. But hey, look, now you should have young guys that you can rotate in that you can trust because they just played a full game against Arkansas. And again, I I mentioned they, they wore down in the second half. So let's prevent that from happening again by having a lot of guys rotate in. You're going to go up some points against LSU. I think there's no doubt there. So the question then becomes, how do you just become as effective as you can? Make sure that you're as fresh in the second half as you were in the first half and uh, and hopefully pull one out there in Baton Rouge. I read that over on the SI Gators, uh, just to give the source on that. Uh, elsewhere on the defense, we saw Jaden Robinson, 17 snaps, Jakeem Jackson, 14 snaps, and Bryce Thornton, 38 snaps. Well, so, and 16 for Cameron Waits, who – even the fact that he's on the field is just a miracle. Yeah, so he's, right he's, he's, he must have Aaron Rodgers, doctor. Aaron Rodgers is like taking notes. Uh, it's incredible that he's even getting any playing time this season. But yeah, you're right. The loss, it, it really impacts the idea of a bowl game. Uh, LSU, certainly next. We got Missouri on the road. I saw that was a 730 kickoff as well. And then Florida State coming in the swamp. So yeah, I'll take a win in one of those three. We'll, we'll do that. I'm okay with that. I'm, I'm fine. We'll we'll. We'll sign up for any one of those right now. Uh, LSU, though, 7.30 p.m. on the SEC Network in Death Valley. Uh, the SEC has the Tigers traveling back to Gainesville next year, but with the additions of Texas and Oklahoma, there's no guarantee that Florida's going back to Baton Rouge anytime soon because 25 schedules aren't out yet. So enjoy this one, folks. Uh, it's been a fun – I've really enjoyed this rivalry with LSU. Records don't seem to matter much in this game. Of course, the recent history has not been friendly to the Gators. It's been a real struggle the last few years with LSU. Jaden Daniels, which arguably was his coming out party last year, in last year's season was that Florida game. Uh, he has had an excellent season, but he was knocked out of the Bama game thanks to a huge hit from Dallas Turner early in the fourth quarter. I I had flashbacks to that Quinn Ewers hit that Turner is Turner like the enforcer for saving. He's just like, uh, I remember that Texas hit from last season uh, that knocked out Ewers of that game. So Turner, Turner did what he does, man. So LSU, they were hanging in there. It was, they actually had a lead in the third quarter, 28, 21, and they just struggled the rest of the second half, especially, uh, Daniels goes out early in the fourth quarter. Garrett Nussmeyer, uh, did Will fall over? I said the word Nussmeyer. You good over there? Uh, I My heart skipped a beat, but I'm all right. All right, good. So Garrett Nussmeyer comes in, and for only the second time, LSU scores less than 30 points this season. Their offense has been electric throughout most of the year. Uh, if Daniels, if they win that game in Baton Rouge, Daniels might be the front runner for the Heisman right now, but didn't get it done. LSU falls to six and three on the season. Uh, they're coming into a game where really they've had a bad second half in Tuscaloosa, a bad second half against Florida state. And then just the defense struggled all day with that old miss offense. So it's really the story of can their defense slow anything down. So this LSU team is certainly susceptible on that side of the ball. Will, and we have seen Florida catch on in recent weeks, although we've not seen Florida perform well against high-level opponents on the offensive side of the ball. So it'll be interesting to see where which direction this one goes. It's a high-level opponent in the sense that LSU is, has been a, uh, a very good team this year, but the defense for LSU, not a strength at all. So if Graham Mertz and the guys can make it a shootout, I'll be interested to see if the Gators can keep it interesting. Yeah, so I think there's a couple of things here. Jaden Daniels, um, a QB rating of 199.8, and he's also averaging 6.7 yards per rush on 102 rushes. So given that Florida just le- allowed KJ Jan- KJ Jefferson to run wild on him, um, Jaden Daniels being in there in the lineup would would be a major issue for them. Garrett Nussmeyer, not the same quarterback, right? 56% completion percentage in his three years at LSU, 7.6 yards per attempt, QB rating of 128.6, and he's averaging negative 8.3 yards on the ground. So he is sackable. He is not a guy. He, he might be able to extend a play with his legs a little bit to get the throw off, but he's not a guy who's going to threaten you downfield in a read option type of, of scenario like Florida just got burned on last week. So I think major major storyline here if Jaden Daniels can't go 
If Garrett Nussmeyer looks like an all-star against Florida's defense, I don't know that that necessarily says a ton about Nussmeyer. I think it might say a lot about Florida's defense at the same time. It completely changes the complexion of what LSU does on offense. And probably, you know, their offense right now is like the number one offense in the country, at least in terms of yards per play. They're third overall in points per game. They're first in yards per rush and they're second in yards per pass. But that yards per rush is augmented so much by Jaden Daniels that their rushing offense is actually going to go down if you get rid of him. So last week's last week's meeting against Arkansas was weakness on weakness and strength on strength. Arkansas's offense and Florida's defense were clearly the weaknesses. And so that was where I sort of zoned in. This one's different. This is sort of so, you know, LSU's offense is clearly their strength. Florida's defense clearly their weakness. So you got strength on weakness. I think you could say the same thing about Florida. Florida's offense is their is their strength overall. And and LSU's weakness is their defense. And it's interesting when you go look at the numbers, Alabama's 49th in the country now in yards per play. And that's after absolutely strafing LSU last week. Florida's 53rd. So mm-hmm. Alabama and Florida's offenses are essentially equivalent. And it didn't look like LSU had any hope of stopping of stopping Alabama at all. Now, Graham Mertz is a much different quarterback than Jalen Milrow, and so they're not going to be able to attack him the same way. But the idea that Florida shouldn't be able to keep up with LSU's offense, I think, is a misnomer in this one. So, um, you know, look, I think this is the only opportunity Florida has to get that sixth win. I think Missouri is a pretty well-balanced team. It's on the road. It's going to be cold at night. I think Florida State, also a very well-balanced team. That when you're sort of relying on the rivalry and the emotion and that sort of stuff to keep you in it. But in terms of like the overall statistical profile, there's no reason to pick Florida in either of those games. This is one where I think you look at it and say, look, the best win for LSU is over Missouri. And that was one where it was back and forth, back and forth, back and forth the entire game. And Missouri made a couple of turnovers and LSU was able to pull away because of Jaden Daniels. Florida's best wins Tennessee, which is actually a better win than a win over Missouri, given sort of the the profiles of those teams thus far. Obviously, that one's in the swamp. And obviously, Joe Milton was not playing full full cylinders. And still, you know, Milton isn't the best quarterback in the world. But, um, you know, the losses for LSU are against top teams. So Florida State, Ole Miss, and Alabama. And so the question then is, well, are they a top-tier team or are they significantly below that? And how significantly below are they? I think Florida's not a top-tier team either. But again, losing to Utah, losing to Georgia, the Arkansas loss and the Kentucky loss is a sort of mid-tier. So, you know, those are those are teams that LSU probably would have beaten. And, you know, but they would have beaten him with Jaden Daniels. When you take Daniels out of there, if Nussmeyer's playing, all of a sudden I think you're on much more level playing ground. And, and you know, I, I almost liken this one, and, and obviously LSU doesn't have as much riding on it, but I liken this one to 2020 when – when LSU came into the swamp, everyone was very disappointed with Ed Orgeron's team. He had either been fired or was about to be fired, and everybody knew he was a dead man walking. And Grantham's defense came out there. Dan Mullen decides to sit Kyle Pitts, and the fog rolls in. Everything goes weird, and all of a sudden, Florida's in that game. I think it's sort of the same thing I said about the Arkansas thing, is that Florida's going to come out there, and if LSU puts up two quick touchdowns, game's over. But if Florida can come out there and can jump on him, can get a turnover, can, can make it through the first quarter where they're ahead. I think that gives them the belief that they can do it. And I think LSU's the team that then tightens up. Florida's the team that's sort of playing with house money at that point. No one really expects them to beat this juggernaut offense on the road after losing to Arkansas. I think there's going to be a little bit of a chip on the shoulder type of thing. And as long as they don't fall apart early, this game will be really, really close. Because I do think LSU has a lot of disadvantages that Florida should be able to take advantage of. And let's pray it doesn't come down to anything on special teams. So let's yeah. hope for that too. I don't know. Poland weed eater. Who who wants to who wants to sponsor next week, man? I tell you what. I tell you what. We'll get a we'll get a sponsor, and then you can be the person who breaks the hex. If we don't have a special teams gaff next week, we'll be like, hey, it's because these people sponsored the gaff of the week that we didn't have a gaff and that we were able to win. So you can you can help us get rid of that uh, get rid of that hex um, if you come sponsor it. Man, oh man, <laughs> tough times, everybody, right now. I I don't think this week's the week to to sit there. Like, look, you go back, you could read our preseason magazine. We talked about the idea of patience heading into the season. I know people are tired of hearing about that. I know there's expectations at Florida. This is not a forever patience. It doesn't last forever. Uh, personally, 
Will, I'm tired of the turnover. We've seen we've we've chewed through four coaches in the, in the last decade here. We're, we're trying to chew through our fourth in the last decade here. It, it, let's take it easy. Let's figure it out. Like we got a few more things to figure out. I, I I'm very anxious to see TJ Lagway next year. I want to see. I think Graham Mertz has been a pleasant surprise. I think he's not. There's no guarantee that 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 Lagway's starting right out the shoot. You know, I think Mertz has done enough this season to make that a legitimate competition uh, going into the spring. Well, good. There needs to be a lot of competition because, yeah, I'm (laughs) urban Meyer in the swamp Kings documentary talked about going nine and three and that the fan base had him worried that if he did it again, he was going to be out. And uh, that's, that's the minimum expectation at Florida and next year's schedule is certainly uh, a pretty decent gauntlet and we may not be picking him to go nine and three next year, but that's the minimum expectation at Florida. Eventually, if you're gonna if you're gonna be winning, like nine and three is not good enough. Like nine and three is what Tennessee does while we're going eleven and one. And uh, you know, Butch Jones was jet- jettisoned from Tennessee. And heck, even uh, you think about like Nebraska, right? With Bo Pelini, he was winning nine games a year, and they got rid of him because that wasn't good enough for Nebraska. Now, obviously, things have sort of gone in different directions for those teams after they've gotten rid of those coaches, and maybe they should have been thankful for nine wins at a time. But that's not the expectation at Florida. And Billy Napier, Billy Napier, I think in many ways embraces that as the expectation. You don't come to Florida if you don't if you don't embrace that the expectation is national championship or bust but look if this team has uh the appropriate level of competition if they have the appropriate level of recruiting and if they have the appropriate talent at quarterback and they can fix the operational issues there's no reason that with a 12 team playoff next year they shouldn't be in that conversation given the schedule that they have right that you should be able to drop two or three games and still have a legitimate case to be in that to be in that discussion given the teams that they're going to have to play but if they're seven and five, I can understand why people would be upset. And so, look, I, I think I'm not ready to get rid of Billy Napier right now. I don't think that makes a lot of sense. I think certainly there are some changes that need to be made. He even alluded to it in his press conference this week that you're evaluating that stuff all year long. And now's not the appropriate time to make the change, but you're evaluating it and you'll make changes at the end of the year. So let's see what changes he makes. Let's let him bring in this recruiting class. Let's let him add to this recruiting class. Hopefully there's two or three more big time, you know, top 100 guys who are going to come in along with it. And then you got to give them a couple of years to ride with that. But like I said earlier, I think an expectation at this point, given the history that we've seen that Billy Napier is going to be some giant schematic difference on the field, I think is probably an unrealistic expectation. So we're going to have some special teams gaps. We're going to have some stuff out there that we look at and go, God, like if we could just fix that, but I don't think we're going to fix it. I think, you know, we're looking two years in that stuff. Isn't going to get fixed, at least not in a massive game changing way. And so we got to live with that. Say that's a limitation. Now, where are the limitations not there and how do we go out and take advantage of it? And look, if Mertz pushes Lagway and Lagway can't beat him out, great. But Lagway needs to beat him out <laughs> in order for Florida to get to where they need to be the next two, three, four years. And so, you know, look, I think going into fall camp, if that's a legitimate, that's a legitimate competition, that's a good thing for Florida's program. Um Hopefully there's a bowl game then to to get those guys in, get some extra bowl practices. Lagway talked about potentially coming in for those as well. And that competition starts right when the regular season ends and we can get going on to 2024. Well, there are, there's plenty of hope for the future here, but we do have three games left in 2023. So let's hope we can enjoy at least one of them. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll sure try. We'll sure try here, but uh, Gators go to Baton Rouge to face the LSU Tigers this week. Let's get the W and go bowling. For Will Miles, I'm Nick Newton. Have a great week, everybody, and go Gators. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to Stand Up and Holler. If you're interested in more information from me and Nick, you can go over to readandreaction.com. You can like and subscribe our YouTube channel here at Read and Reaction, or you can go to patreon.com slash readandreaction to support us, get extra information, and we do ask anythings over there every once in a while as well. So check us out. Thanks for listening.